Hi, everybody. Today, I'm very excited to have uh, a big TV personality, Jedediah Villa. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. Uh, I wanted to just read some of your books and your re most recent one. I didn't commit them to memory, so forgive me if I look. Uh, you had a book titled Outnumbered Chronicles of a Manhattan Conservative. We can certainly talk about that. Hashtag do not disturb how I ghosted my cell phone to take back my life. I definitely need to talk about that because I can't get my children. It is it is easier to get someone to get off crystal meth than to get my children to get off electronics. So if you've got any secrets, please, I'd like to share. I'd like you to share them. And then the most recent book, Dear Hartley, which is your young son, thoughts on character, kindness and building a brighter world. We can, of course, talk about that. You were also someone um, at Fox for a while. Then you moved to The View, which I definitely want to talk about that. Then you went back to Fox. So first, welcome. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Uh, should we start by talking first about uh, your books, whichever one you want to go? I mean, I think they're all kind of interesting to talk about. Uh, we can maybe begin with, the, we begin with the earliest one and work our way yeah. all the way to Dear Hatley. Take it away. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so I I wrote that first book all by, all on my own. I didn't even go through a publisher, which is something that people don't know. I was writing journal entries while I was teaching at a private school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan at the time. I was uh, a teacher. I was an academic dean. And I was living through the presidential election of 2008, essentially, watching the Obama mania that was going on in New York City. And I was on the front lines in academia, I was teaching at a, you know, my, my courses were grade seven through 12. And I was just watching this, all of the stuff that I had heard about for so long when it came to bias in academia and liberal bias in schools. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm seeing it firsthand. And I wanted to chronicle it. So I wrote journal entries while I was teaching there, talking about things that the kids were saying to me in the classroom, things that were going on. Uh, in terms of, you know, kids, oh, you can wear this logo tee, but you can't wear that logo tee. You can wear this sticker because it's approved by the administration politically, but you can't wear that one. And just watching this like Palin phobia that was happening in Manhattan. And I just started writing the journal entries and decided, actually went to a publisher and they said to me at the time, we love this, but we want to edit it. And there, there was a heavy hand of editing that was going to go into that. And I said, you know what? I don't want that. This is supposed to be journal entries, authentic. I, at the time, had just started popping on TV here and there. And I said, I'm going to do it myself. And it was crazy. My, If people look at that book, uh, the cover was shot by my best friend. We shot it outside. I, uh, My two best friends edited that with me. It's very, very raw, real. And I kind of in the process wanted to show people like, hey, if you have something to say out there and you don't want to go through a publishing house or you want to you don't want to do that or you maybe you don't have access to do that. Not everybody has access to do that. You can do it. You can get your voice out there. And it was so funny because I got like super big endorsement quotes on the back, you know, Mark Levin and Sean Hannity and David Limbaugh. And I went to them and I was like, hey, can you read this? And they were so kind. And they stuck that on there. And I launched it. I believe it was on Mark Levin's radio show. And it was just crazy for this girl who had just been a teacher and wasn't, you know, the daughter of a famous politician or didn't have any of that infrastructure built in. And I think that was that became more important to me than anything to showcase that if you have a message, you don't need all of that fancy stuff around you to get it out there. So I wrote that one and it was it was a great fun experience. Um, the was it a surprise? Sorry, forgive yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was it a surprise to your colleagues at 
probably the super liberal school that you were at that you were you know more on the conservative bent or or were you already out of the conservative closet it was a surprise um and and it actually it was not well received so i was working at this it's a private school on the upper east as i said very liberal i mean what what you the stories that you hear about about those woke private schools that's it that's like that's that's what i was teaching at and i was not really speaking about politics and started to write a little bit on a blog and um i remember Sean Hannity like their producers had called me and i was like I don't even know if I if I want to do this. Like I didn't know if I wanted to be that saturated in what I knew to be a very deeply corrupt world, which is the world of political media. It's a dirty business. And I knew that. So I said, I don't know. And I went and I was hesitant at first. I was teaching Spanish, by the way, not history or anything like that. But I was like, do I want to, you know, be political and have, you know, if students but uh, come aware of that. But all the teachers in the school were political. They were all political. They were all talking about their politics. They were all wearing the, you know, the T-shirts or that they were very, very political. So I was like, oh, this won't be an issue. Well, little did I know it actually was going to be an issue because my politics didn't align with what they liked. So it wound up being that suddenly they were looking for I had just been promoted twice. And I remember suddenly they were looking and nitpicking like, oh, can we sit in on your classes? And I was like, why? And it became very clear to me that this was going to be now. Uh, an effort to kind of build a file on someone who was doing nothing wrong. I mean, I had been promoted multiple times at that point. Um, I was teaching Spanish. The kids love me like, but I, I could see that the politics were getting in the way. I can remember being actually called into the um, head of the upper school's office a couple of times. And I thought it was related to the students. And he would just sit down and be like, do you really believe what you what you're saying? I mean, is this really possible? Like, how can you say? And I was like, wow, he's these people are deeply threatened by my political beliefs. Um, this is going to be a problem. So that ultimately became uh, a reason why I made the decision to leap out of that world and, you know, even pursue political media at all, because I said, well, academia is not going to work for me unless I go teach at Hillsdale, you know, <laughs> like I don't I didn't want to leave New York City. Wow. And I was like, let me I have this amazing chance to be a voice of a regular person who grew up in Staten Island and didn't have political ties and didn't go to journalism school, but was just being a regular voice of common sense. And I was like, I've been given this microphone. I'm going to seize it and just see what happens. So, so that you was had, you had no intention of being a public figure. You were, you know, merrily going along in your academic career. Had you not written that book, you could have still been a teacher today. Well, yeah. I mean, interestingly, so I grew up in a house. My mom taught acting classes out of our living room. And I, when I was younger, I was very shy and I was very, um, you know, I wanted to always be close to my family. I was an only child and I, I loved acting. So ideally I wanted to be an actress mm. and I was, I would have loved that, but I was just too shy for that world. And every time I tried it when I was a kid or later when I was like 22 years old, I remember going out to Los Angeles and I was like, this business is too shady for me. I'm too like, I didn't have that energy of like, oh, you know, I'm going to do what Madonna did and I'm just going to, you know, mess with this dirty business and what I'm going to get, make that climb to the top no matter what. I, that wasn't me. So um, I was in some ways very, you know, sheltered. I grew up in Staten Island, even though I was a New York City girl, I was sheltered from a lot of that crazy. So I started writing on a blog and I always say this, I joke with my really good friend about it, my friend Lauren, and I say, 
I was writing, you know, co columns that I was submitting at the time to Runner's World and writing about, you know, to Pets magazines. And some of it was politics. That was just what caught on. So I, I really didn't know when that came to me. I said, I don't know if I want that life. I had, by the way, gone to school and gotten a master's from Columbia in Spanish okay. because I at the time was like, I'm going to be a Spanish professor. I loved the simplicity to me of that world. I loved college campuses. I liked the work-life balance of having that time off um, to, to do read and do research. That was just my, I loved it. So my plan was not to be hosting a, a talk show. So <laughs> a couple all. of points. Number one, I think you have a romantic view of what academia is because simple sim simple is not the the way i would describe it if you think your uh woke liberal school was bad walk in my shoes for a day as a you know full-time yeah. professor in the worst possible ecosystem of you know university academia right uh and yet i do so right. that's some, the second one that i thought the second point that i thought was interesting is that you said you were very shy to to, to be a an actress and yet many actors and actresses who are very shy find it liberatory to be an actor or actress because they're now presenting themselves in another character so what you did is you were too shy to be an actress but not shy enough to then present yourself to the world how do you kind of reconcile what could appear to be a contradiction because it's a lot tougher to present yourself as you to the world than as someone who's playing a yes. role and yet you did it Yes, I think I think some of it was the age that I was when these things happened. And the truth of the matter was, I had a very sheltered upbringing in the sense I grew up in Staten Island, I was around my family, I went to a, you know, a private Catholic school. Um, when I hit, you know, 22, and I went into the city, I moved, you know, away and I was in Manhattan and I was, you know, doing the grind in Manhattan of what that life looks like. And I think that I had a little bit more um, confidence and a, to face that world. And I think for me, I didn't really know the depth of what was going to happen. Like, I, I don't think I really understood what it mean to what it meant to go on TV and share your opinion and what was coming my way in those initial days, you know, weeks, etc. Um, I think for me, though, with acting, the challenge was there was, you know, all of that talk about like the casting couch and all that was real. I, I saw it. I, I watched it. I rejected it. And I was somebody who didn't grow up in in, in a time where like, oh, you know, hookup culture and all. I was very sheltered in that respect. So I was like, that's just not going to be for me. Um, and there was just a darkness about the entertainment business. I think I also knew that I was a conservative. I did have conservative values and I didn't know how well that was going to do in a, a Hollywood world. Right. <laughs> um, so it, it was and, and, and also a key component of that was I would have had to move away from my family and go to Los Angeles because I really was interested in film and television more than theater. So I just I wasn't I wasn't in the right head. It didn't feel every time I tried to do it, it didn't feel right. Whereas when I was in New York City and this opportunity came from Fox, um, it just felt like instinctually like this was the moment. And there was something oddly about it being my own opinion that actually felt better for me because it felt like I'm I was grounded in that it was like I I'm comfortable with who I am I'm comfortable with what I stand for I'm going to go into this space and I'm just going to say how I feel it just felt to me 
a lot simpler than entering the world of um, entertainment media. Now, is that ultimately how I wound up feeling? Not quite, actually. So that's an interesting, it's actually, I will now say that I think political media can be just as dirty, if not dirtier than entertainment media in different ways. But um, yeah, that was, that was where that, that kind of distinction sat for me at that moment. Got you. All right. Book two, hashtag how I ghosted my phone. Tell us about this because it is so relevant to my own personal life. So take it away. So I was addicted to my cell phone, um, really. And I grew up in a in a world when I was younger where that wasn't a reality. You know, I didn't have a cell phone growing up as as most of us didn't. And I didn't get my first cell phone till uh, the end of college. And it was one of those phones that you couldn't really do anything on. Yeah. So you weren't distracted by it in the same way. But I, you know, started to get addicted to the phone and I was living in a world where I was always like this. You know, I was seeing the outside world through the lens of the phone. Oh, there's a beautiful sunset. Let me grab a photo of it. Let me stick a filter on it. Let me do all of these things. And in in the process, I was actually missing the sunset itself. Um, I also you know, was realizing that when I looked around at people who were dating and in relationships, they weren't having conversations with each other anymore. They weren't looking eye to eye. Younger generations who only knew this world of going through this phone and existing through this phone weren't building up a lot of the skills that you need to interact with people in the real world. And I was seeing that unfold. I was even seeing it in my students, you know, at the time earlier, this is, I I wrote the book later, but I was remembering like, wow, I was seeing all of these skill sets that were just missing, missing. Why is that happening? And it was really because the younger generations weren't forced to have that backbone, walk across that middle school dance floor, ask a girl out, face that rejection. No, this was all through now this little phone where you were kind of shielded from real life. So I wrote the book and I talked about how, you know, a lot of these big tech companies, um, Silicon Valley will study behavioral psychology, which I'm sure you know plenty about, and (laughs) will study that and study human behavior to try to create these apps and in a way that gets you addicted, how we were all essentially being puppeteered and why it was important to not allow that to happen, particularly for ourselves in the next generation. So that became a big passion of mine. And now I'm still on social media. Remember, the message of the book I say to people all the time wasn't throw everything out. Um, It was figure out a way to manage that in a way that you still have a real life and that stuff doesn't own you. Instead, you are allowing it to be part of your life in a way that's healthy for you. So that's what I've been able to achieve. You know, I, I'm i not sure if my daughter will be upset that I'm sharing this little snippet of our <laughs> personal life, but I just returned on uh, Sunday from uh, uh, actually a conference that would be of interest to you and your viewers. It was a conference on academic freedom at Stanford, where I was one of the speakers. And so I, I was away for three, four days. And I, I'm, I seldom like to, although I travel a lot, I as much as I can, I like to bring my family with me. We're very, very much connected with one another. Incidentally, that's what makes it difficult for me to see them grow up because as they grow up, they they start developing their own, you know, individual interests and so on. And it's very, very difficult for me to accept. But in any case, as they came, my my whole family, my children and my wife came to pick me up. And as I got into the car and we were driving back home, uh, I turned to speak to my daughter and she was on the phone, uh, you know, texting. Yes. And later I, I spoke to her and I I mean, I was a bit upset and and I said, you know, 
can you imagine that this can hurt someone's feeling? Because even at that moment where I might hope to have your attention because I've been away from the home for four days and therefore I'm hoping to be able to monopolize your attention for a few minutes, I lost to the phone. Can you appreciate that? That and I and I think she, you know, she took it. She she understood, but that gives you a sense of exactly what you were saying about the sunset. That you know, traditionally you would think she'd come, she'd hug me, she'd be all focused, tell me about everything you're doing. No, actually, the pull of texting to someone was greater than to you know say hello to her dad. So I I, I feel your addiction. Yes, and I actually, you know, I have a uh, my son is turning three. Uh, in just a few days, actually. And I'm very conscious of that with him. And I noticed that because I do my work on my phone, you know, I have to post on social or they'll send me, um, we're on an app where we communicate, you know, with the Jedediah Beal Alive team. I, I noticed sometimes that I will grab the phone and do something quickly and he's watching me. Yes. So if he wants my attention and that's time I've designated for him, I have to be wary of that because I don't want my child saying mommy, 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 and I'm staring at this little box. He doesn't understand what that means. And I also don't want him to then feel it's okay to do that to other people because they model their behavior so much off of what we do. So it's it's not easy in the modern world to kind of get get in ahead. I always say I want a DeLorean because I want to go back in time because it was just there was a simplicity to those times in many respects without all of this tech overflow. But that's not realistic. So I tell people just be cognizant of your behavior and, you know, what your kids are seeing, what they're learning from you and what you're missing out on by staring at that phone. And maybe it becomes about, you know, creating certain hours in the day where you're plugged in and then certain hours in the day where you're unplugged. And that's just a reality of the modern world and how we work. But it is something near and dear to my heart. That book is um, probably of all of the three. Well, actually, the third one is probably my my most special one. But um, the third one faced a lot of challenges because I released it at a very inconvenient time. Let's just say that. But um, before we'll we get, get to <laughs> yeah, before we get to that, I mean, for me, I, I mean, I would hardly say that I'm addicted to to my phone, other than the fact that it is instrumental in getting my ideas out. Right. So to the extent that I'm constantly interacting with my phone, it really is for an instrumental purpose, which is you know, I'm tweeting, you know, mocking some idiotic political position or so it's not so much I am, you know, uh, on Facebook seeing what other people are doing. So in other words, if I weren't someone who was in the public eye, if I weren't a professor always engaged with the public in terms of discussing ideas, I would probably easily, I'd like to think, easily walk away from it. So in a sense, my pull is always because I've got this opportunity with these toys to instead of reaching, you know, 40 students in a classroom to reach 40,000 people when I just open up my laptop and do a sad truth clip or if I go on a show. And so it's in that sense that I'm addicted because it's these are toys that allow me to spread the ideas. In your case, is it is it is your when when you were addicted to the cell phone was it that you were the one who was just looking at what your high school friends were up to, or were you also using it as a tool for your career largely? No, back to, I mean, now I, I'm more in line with what you're saying. I okay. mean, truthfully, if I didn't do what I do for a living right now, I probably wouldn't even have social media. I would just be very happy to get rid of it all. Um, and there's a part of me, I swear, at, at least once a week, I say, should I just move to the middle of nowhere in Montana and just forget it all? You know, but I feel that. 
you know, the message that I have on these issues is really important. And I have a child and I want to try to take this country, this world in, in a better direction. So that's why I, I agree. I'm very much on board with you. That's why I'm so present. Um, I still monitor it. Like you'll notice if you look at my Twitter, there's periods where I'm very silent and then there's periods where I'm very active. That's intentional. But back when I was addicted, that's not what it was. I was falling into the black hole of kind of hypnosis. Oh. Uh, and I was just, you know, finding myself scrolling out of habit, which is what they want, you know, that they they're, they want you to, you know, grab another potato chip out of the bag and, and, and just do it without even realizing that you're not hungry anymore. That's a very good analogy. And to, as it relates to people who are actually addicted to their phones. And I was just, you know, minutes would go by and sometimes an hour would go by. And then I just got used to checking it. I remember at one point I had left it somewhere in a taxi cab. Actually, I had left it in a taxi cab and I was like panic stricken as if it was like a baby or if it was an appendage. And I finally got it back and I get it back and I look at it and there's nothing important on there. Yeah. Nothing has, you know, an asteroid hasn't hit, you know, nothing major has happened. But I realized in that moment, the pull that I had created between me and this object and that was one of the moments where I said, okay, something unhealthy is going on here. So that was definitely how it hit me. Gotcha. Okay. So let's move on. You said you, you, you know, you, you, you weigh in on all these issues because you have a young son, you'd like to leave the yeah. world in a better place. So that's a perfect segue to book three, Dear Hartley, what's going on there? So Dear Hartley uh, started again, kind of how the first book started with a series of letters that I actually didn't intend to publish. In fact, I had been in talks with the publisher. Um, I was talking to Hachette at the time about a completely different book. I was going to do a book about education and what was going on in the educational system, not just the woke stuff, but also just, you know, money constantly thrown at education and why that's problematic and just the breakdown of the family. I had it all outlined. In fact, I submitted it and I got an offer. Um, everything was ready to go. And I was writing these letters and I happened to mention to the editor at the time, oh, I'm just writing this other stuff, you know, on the side. She said, well, what are you writing? And I said, I'm writing a series of letters to my son because I'm really worried about the state of the world. And I, he's too small for me to convey this stuff to right now, but I want it in writing and I'm going to do it through a series of stories. And she said, hold on a second. And they actually gave me a better offer for that book. <laughs> they were really excited about it. Um, and it became a chance to really talk to him before he could understand what I was saying. He was very small at the time um, and just chronicle a time in this country, you know, during COVID and lockdowns. And the it was actually at the very, very start of that, that I was writing this um, and talk to him about freedom and talk to him about how I wanted him to be a free thinking person and grow up in a world that was increasingly wanting to silence people and why it was important for him to be able to stand up for how he sees the world and just values of personal responsibility and owning your own choices and, you know, being comfortable with with being, you know, a man in society and what that means um, and what it means, you know, to have a mom and a dad and what a nuclear family means and why that nuclear family has been so important for him, even in the first, you know, year of his life. So I wrote it all down and um, it, I, you know, they asked me, do you want me to do you want to put a picture of you and him on the cover? And that was tough at first. I said, 
I don't know about that because there's people who hate me and I don't want them lashing out at my child. Um, But he, you know, I had pictures of him on social media and I'm so proud of him. And he's so such a beautiful soul that I said, you know what? I'm owning this message and this message is for him. So, yeah, let's do it. He is the prize of my life um, and I love him more than anything. (laughs) So let's do it. And we put his little faces on there. And a lot of challenges happen when I release that book. First of all, we were in the midst of COVID, not a great time to be releasing a book. So we had speaking, you know, all stuff that was canceled, which was sad. Um, And then I had planned to launch that book on The View. Uh, We were going to do Loop in GMA and we were going to do this whole big thing on The View. And I had been tapped to guest co-host there. It was the season where they were, you know, trying to decide what they were going to do for the following season. They said, please, Jed, come back. You'll do a bunch of shows. I said, can we loop in the book? Yes, yes, it'll be amazing. So and that, of course, all fell apart when um, they had their vaccine mandate. I wound up doing a show remotely with them that was outrageous what they did to me. Um, And the world kind of just went down. What did they do to you? You can't just tell us that without telling us. Go for it. Well, it was pretty it was pretty horrible. Um, It was actually pretty horrible. And I I had had a good people had always asked me about the view. And prior to that experience, I had had a pretty good relationship with everybody. I mean, I had been let go uh, a few years before that quite suddenly. Um, I mean, it was crazy. I had a three-year contract and I had re-upped my contract that every year, even though you had a three-year contract, you had to re-up every year. And I re-upped it and we did a whole bunch of press for the start of the season. And I interview Hillary Clinton on a Thursday and I ask, I basically very politely tell her that she's tone deaf. She is. We all know that. And I said, you know, excuse me, but I, you know, you don't understand why Trump won. And people can go watch the clip for the exactly what I said. And I don't know if that was a reason why But four days later, I have no job. And it was horrible. Um, I loved my job there. I had a good relationship with everyone. I was told internally that, you know, the numbers were great for the show. The numbers were great. You can go and people can go back and look at that. So I don't know what happened. There were some players on the scene producers there who were ill-intentioned toward pretty much everyone. They've since been fired because some pretty horrible stuff came out about what they were doing. I don't know if they were... um, you know, just looking to replace me for no reason. But before I don't know what the motivation was, but it does seem odd that that moment happens with Hillary and then I'm gone. And I I really swallowed that. I didn't, you know, take it out on producers who I had 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 a really good relationship with and I didn't take it out on the cast in any way. It wasn't their fault. And I just kind of it was it was a tough pill to swallow at the time because I worked really hard that year and I I loved that. I was having a great time. It was it was a really good combination of people. Um, And, you know, we had gone to Disney, all that stuff. So it was it was I swallowed it and I said, you know what? Life does this sometimes. The universe hands you stuff sometimes and it's how you react to it that matters. And I kind of picked myself up and everything was going well. In fact, Sunny was at my wedding. Um, Sarah was invited to the wedding. She was actually, I think, pregnant and about to have a baby or something was going on there. She couldn't make it. But it was it was not a, an unfriendly parting thanks to the way I behaved frankly I could have I could have probably had a fit about it um and some may have <laughs> but I went back um you know when this dear Hartley stuff happened and I, they wanted me to come on and they sent somebody to COVID test me at the house and I tested negative of course and I had had COVID already I had an exemption letter for the vaccine early on because I 
spoke with, you know, several of my doctors and they were like, listen, this isn't for you with your medical history. Um, I had had Lyme disease in the past that had sucked and I, I had COVID and I was fine. You know, I had had it recovered. There was no issue. He said, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to throw this curveball in there. There's just not, not a lot of, enough studies. You don't need it. You don't need it. And it's not, it's, you're not going to be, you know, getting this thing, passing it to anybody. Don't worry about it. That was what the, the line of thinking was at the time. I had a letter. I submitted it. Orig- initially it was accepted by the folks at The View. They sent someone to COVID test me. I get a call the next day. Nope, there's a vaccine mandate. You can't come in the building. Okay. I said, what am I going to do? So we did it remotely. And I was really excited to go on. I did a full pre-interview the night before with um, a producer who I know and who's a great guy. Um, I explained that I was opposed to the mandates. I explained my situation. He wrote it all down. The, the, the cast was aware that's I know how that show works. So the cast is fully aware of what you're going to say when you come in. They are briefed heavily on your points. And I show up the next day and I say two words about how, like, listen, I'm opposed to mandates because the vaccine doesn't prevent you from, you know, getting or spreading this. Um, and I'm shouted down as misinformation. You know, Sonny starts shouting like, oh, misinformation. I can't allow this to go on. And I'm just thinking, OK, so I was set up is the bottom line. I was set up because I know the show. I worked on the show and I know that you guys have full awareness of what I'm going to say. And you actually invited me on. And I had a conversation with the senior producer saying, I'm going to be a postman. It's all, that'll be a great discussion. So they wanted their shout down moment. And of course it was utterly ridiculous because I was actually echoing the talking points of even, even though we know the CDC is what it is. I was echoing them at that point. So I was saying something that was just undeniable fact, which was I'm exempt. My doctors, by the way, two of the four doctors that gave me the exemption were vaccinated themselves. They weren't anti-vaxxers. They were vaccinated. They were saying, hey, it's not it's not for you. This isn't I'm not sure about this yet. And I I would just I'd hold. So they denied essentially my own reality. <laughs> they were like, no, no, no. You know, and then they dismissed me. And it was I it was a pretty horrible um, it was a horrible experience. Um for for me, just because I had given the institution over there the benefit of the doubt for a really long time. Um, also, you know, it showed me that a lot of people in this business aren't actually they're your friends, you know, for the moment, because but, you know, honestly, you don't you wouldn't I would never shout somebody down like that, that I deemed, you know, a colleague, let alone a friend. So it was a, it was an awakening for me. Um, and it kind of changed a lot of how I viewed interactions with the modern left And my approach, I had always been someone that was very much, um, let's all get in a room and have a conversation. You know, let's, we have to be able to, you know, talk with others, the other side and we're all still people. And I, I realized in that moment that something had happened to the modern left that they were not, they weren't interested in a conversation anymore. And they were going to try to take me out, even on an issue where it was about my own personal health and it was really none of their business. They weren't, they weren't caring about me at all. So I said, how do you have a conversation with people who 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 don't who aren't interested in it? And it kind of changed my perspective. And I came out of that kind of a warrior for freedom in a way that I hadn't been before. I'd always cared about it, but now it was a mission. Um, so they wound up giving me a dose of I, I don't I, something that I really needed, which was like an awareness of what this battle really looks like. So I, you know, I'm obviously someone on the outside in that I don't know any of these people. Uh, mm-hmm. But whenever I've seen a clip of them, I'm able, I think, to form a pretty accurate, you know, impression of a person, notwithstanding that I haven't interacted with them on a personal level. So I think the difficulty for me in terms of, 
you know, stomaching any of these folks is that they, to me at least, and, you know, feel free to comment on it or or be diplomatic if you don't wish to comment on it. Someone like uh, Whoopi Goldberg or Joy Behar and so on, they they exude some of the characteristics that I find most detestable in a person, right? So, so I'll give you a few psychological, uh, you know, insights. So there is a phenomenon, which uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Are you, are you familiar with that? Do you know what that is? No. Uh, Dunning-Kruger. So actually D- Dunning was my uh, uh, psychology professor during my PhD. Uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect refers to, if you like, a really deadly mix of someone who is terribly ignorant and yet very proud about their ignorance, right? So so it, it's 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 bad if you're ignorant, but okay. Mm-hmm. It's bad if you're arrogant, that's okay. But if you're arrogant in your ignorance, then we've got a really bad uh, melange, you know? And so I think when I see uh, Joy Behar and Whoopi Goldberg uh, speak, that's all I get from them. I I get dogmatism. I get an inability to actually have a conversation. You know, hey, look, I would love to go on their show. I mean, not because I need the 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 you know the the eyeballs, but because you know, like you, I love the opportunity to always interact with people. But I know it would be a lost cause because they would not be actually sitting there with the capacity to listen. Hey. Dr. Saad, hey, Professor Saad, tell us your position. We'll listen. We'll process. You know, it'll be a hit job. It'll be. And yeah. so I actually find them execrable cretins. I can't stomach the idea of being in a room with them. And yet I understand in your case, you're a professional that, you know, you were on a you know popular show. But on a personal level, were you able to navigate through some of the, the traits that I'm talking about? Because for me, it would be a, a deal breaker. But yet you were able to survive that ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, on a personal level, you know, I had grown up around liberals my whole life, you know, growing up in New York City and going through academia. And I'm sure you've experienced this as well. Um, And I was kind of numb to that. Yes, there's there's a sense that they're always right. There's a sense of rules for thee, but not for me. That's just persistent through everything. There's an elitism there that's really nauseating to me. Um, But I was able to you know, navigate around that just because I was so used to having to work with people who saw the world so differently and who possessed a lot of those traits in the process that personally there wasn't, I mean, I can remember some instances in our meetings before the show where I was, you know, I can remember one where I had made a joke uh, about something that was pro I mean it wasn't even I wasn't even trying to be funny but I can remember what being like you're not funny or something there was some some insult that came my way that was unnecessary probably because we were talking about something that I had made a, a pretty valid point on and no one in the room agreed um but you know this is what I always tell conservatives about that show you you know Barbara Walters had a vision mm-hmm. and it was very different she really did want to have a conversation right. she really did want people to have a seat at the table to be reflective of the country. And I, you can remember that there was that moment where Bill O'Reilly was on and he was right. shouted down and, you know, Joy and Whoopi left. And she went back there and was like, no, you're going to get back out there. This is not what the view is. You know, it's not the view. It's the view. They basically were trying to say the views. That's not what it is anymore. Um, that's not why you're there as a conservative. You are there to um, be marginalized. You are there to be a punching bag. You are there to 
be soft-spoken and acquiesce when the liberal talking points come in. That There are certain talking points that they need to be affirmed no matter what. Right. So yeah. you, need, you are there to allow yourself to be shouted down in those moments when it's, you know, appropriate for the show and the message of the show and the message of, you know, ABC and the message of The View. Um, and what they really want is just a conservative who isn't really conservative. So they can say they hired a conservative, right. but it's really a conservative that's going to agree with liberals on all those key issues that they deem as highly important. And when they disagree, they'll do so a little bit here and there quietly, not ruffle too many feathers. And the audience will walk away feeling like the liberals won the argument. When you go on that show and you make it clear that the liberals are not winning the argument and you as one are able to take that whole table out ideologically, that becomes a huge problem and a huge threat. And that's where you see the fire. Um, and, and some of that does leave the, the set sometimes. Um, I, I just, I had a very strict policy of like, when the show was done, go back into my dressing room, take a deep breath, you know, get ready. I would go work out right after. So I didn't do a lot of the mingling and all of that. And yeah. I don't do that even at Fox. I'm not somebody who really like work for me is work. Um, so maybe that's why I avoided it, but you're, you're not there. And I know they have Alyssa Farah over there right now. And <laughs> listen, I, I don't know her personally. She's probably lovely, but you know, if you're asking me if she is a conservative, no, I mean, I can remember, I remember exchanges that she and I were having over the vaccine mandate. If you were a conservative who was endorsing a mandate on people, what, really? I mean, that was just utterly ridiculous. But they weren't going to hire somebody who they couldn't hire somebody really who who fell outside that because they had a vaccine mandate in the building. So it was there was a lot going on there. Um, and she may be lovely. I, I like I said, I don't know her personally, but she's not. They're not going to hire somebody who is really a threat ideologically to what they want put out there. And if you're going to win that argument, forget it. That that you can't be at that table. And you know, there are a lot of studies. I mean, academic studies and surveys and polls that that look at the 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 types of positions that Democrats will take, say, regarding uh, family members, if they disagree mm -hmm. with them versus conservatives. And, you know, study after study shows that the left is astoundingly more intolerant in their dogmatism, right? So, and, and I mean, anecdotally, if we do a reverse the view, let's call the five the opposite show, right? Because you've got the four yeah. conservatives with the one token, quote, liberal. While yes, that person is typically outnumbered, you don't have nearly the kind of venom thrown from the four conservatives to war, to war you know, Juan Williams and Jessica Tarlov or who met or the yeah what's the mustache guy the uh, uh, Geraldo Geraldo Rivera I mean yes there's there, <laughs> yeah. there is a bit of I mean there's back and forth but it's always done with a smile there's always kind of a good spirit even though oftentimes there are you know disagreements so that just that is instructive about the difference between the left and the right in terms of how they treat disagreements yeah I think that the most notable difference having hosted both of those shows right. um, is, and I know Juan, you know, he was lovely to work with, truthfully. We did not see the world the same way, but he was a perfectly decent human being and always was to me. Um, I think the big difference for me is what happens, the energy that happens when the cameras aren't rolling. So of course, when the cameras are rolling, that tension and that heat, everybody's going to want that. It makes for good television. Right. That's why a liberal is on the panel at the five. That's why a conservative is on the panel at the view. But I can remember, you know, I would sit around and joke around with Juan, talk about family. It was a very calm 
peaceful energy before the, you know, the cameras would yeah. go live. And I can remember sometimes kind of walking on the view, feeling like I had my armor on, like I'm going into battle now, you know, and it felt kind of stressful. I remember the day Hillary came on the view. Um, there was panic uh, backstage because I wanted to ask her about her emails and I wanted to show the document that said she signed this saying that she knew what the C and confidential meant. She lied. So let's ask her about it. Why did you sign this? And I, I have it here. You know, this we can show that. And they, there was like, you can't know. There was panic pacing in the hallways. There was complete Amazing. disarray that I would dare to ask. I didn't even get to ask a question about emails that day, um, but I did ask about the tone deaf issue. And apparently that was sufficient to cause enough crazy after the show. So, you know, I'm yeah. going to say this. I always, uh, I can always, whenever I'm commenting about uh, American politics, I can always hide behind, but I'm Canadian. Therefore I don't have a dog <laughs> in the fight. And so let me yes. say this. I find Hillary Clinton more venomous than the most venomous of snakes. She exudes from every, so I, I'm not getting into her politics. I'm talking mm -hmm. about, you know, are you an authentic person? Do you exude kindness? Do you exude charisma? She is, every pore of her body exudes nastiness, rancor, and venom. Am I yeah. right? Yeah, she has a very um, stoic, kind of um untouchable energy uh on set like there's not a lot of warmth going on there yeah. um there's a very kind of i don't know how else to say it really almost like like if you told me she was a robot i'd believe you yeah you know there's like a lack of humanity there for some reason in her just in just in her temperament that was challenging. And I think that is what that typical Washingtonian, you know, politician elitism, that is what elitism means. Yeah. It means you're kind of removed. And there's others that have that. Kathy Hochul in New York, I think, has that same energy yeah. as Hillary Clinton. Um, there are others uh, in the establishment. And there are Republicans, by the way, too, that also have some of that stoicism that seems like they're it's almost like you you if you could make a list like she'd be in the column of people who are in the job for the wrong reasons. And you right. feel really comfortable saying that. Um, so, yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't know what. Well, listen, I don't think there is a, a big appeal that she has. She she doesn't. I mean, you could say, oh, she won in New York. Yeah, great. Fidel Castro would win in New York. Check in the Democrat column. Come on. That's that's just a reality. But Hillary Clinton loses elections because she's not likable, because there's an inauthenticity there, because she lies um, and people know she's a liar. And because people just the reality is they just don't like her. They don't yeah. like her. They liked Obama. You know, he was a hard left guy. So it's not a policy problem for her. It's about her. And she's just not a terribly likable individual. And she doesn't seem authentic, which I think is the worst thing. You know, Trump, love him or hate him. The guy he's authentic. Like, he's he's authentic. authentic. Oh, yeah. That's the guy like you can love him. You can hate him. But you're not worried that somebody's piping talking points through Trump's earpiece. You know, and I really respect that, by the way, because. You know, uh, I mean, not to compare myself to Trump, because I think we we have a different set of, you know, the tool toolbox in our toolbox. We have different sets of skills, uh, you know, in academia, you you know, there is kind of the professorial, uh, you know, manner of being, which, of course, I can I can be exactly that when I need to be, you know, put on my professor's hat and go and speak at Stanford or publish a 
top academic paper in a top journal, I can do that. But as you probably know, if you, you're familiar with any of my content, I could also be jocular. I can be, I can act like a buffoon. I can be satirical. Yeah. And the reason for that is number one, because I'm very authentic, perhaps to a fault. And I have a very strong sense of personhood. In other words, I don't need to modulate who I am because I step into any context and I say, here I am, I'm God sad with zero modulation. You like it, great. You don't like it, F off. Now, I don't do that because I'm cantankerous and I'm a bad guy, but because I'm just authentic. And I think Trump is that. And, and I actually am drawn to those traits because there's almost nothing that I hate more than falsity, inauthenticity. Because to me, it's a I'm very much of a purist. So when I do my scientific research, I'm always anal about everything being perfect. Because when I'm going through the galley proofs of my book, I, I I panic. What if a comma is out of place? Me too. Right? <laughs> exactly. And so that purity of spirit is something that I admire. So irrespective of whether I like Trump's policy or not, and many of them I, I do support, uh, mm -hmm. The fact that he's authentic and lives life, as I always tell people, like a honey badger, right? Honey badgers don't give an F. I respect that because that means you've got a spine, you've got big testicles, and it's much uh, sexier to go through life with a strong sense of self. Yeah. And I talk a little bit about, I'm trying to think which, I think it's the Dear Hartley book. Yeah, it is Dear Hartley. I talk a little bit about when I first entered the TV business because I didn't come from a political family and because I didn't go to journalism school. I was just a girl from New York, you know? So initially I went through a period of like, trying to kind of be what I thought people needed me to be like, oh, I'm supposed to be the political commentator, right. you know, in terms of just presence and in terms of like composure. And I was kind of looking around me like, oh, this is what it is. Is this the job? You know, like, is this what I need? And, and it took me actually, it was Red Eye. I don't know if you know that show. Oh, with Greg Gutfeld. Yes. I, they initially came to me for that show. Um, and I initially was like, oh, I don't know, because it was like, it was, it was, they would talk about anything and everything. It aired at 3 a.m., as you know. And I was like a little bit worried that I was gonna lose this little, you know, yeah. persona. Not that I wasn't saying what I believed. I was always saying what I believed, but just the way I was saying it felt like I was kind of like a like a little bit guarded. Yeah. Anyway, I did red eye and that all just fell away. <laughs> and I just became like myself. It was like now like the 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 JB from you know the hanging out in Soho and hanging out with my friends was the JB you saw on TV. And it became my favorite show to do. So much so that before I left to go do the view, I was really exclusively at one point just doing red eye because I had so much fun right. and I just got to be me and I would wear different outfits. And I was like, oh, these clothes look like my actual clothes. So I always tell people, you know, getting into the media business or getting into any business or doing anything in life is really just be you. And it's hard at first because you you want to do well and you almost like find yourself oddly you know, mimicking what's around you for a second. And you're like, well, wait a minute, that's not me. Right. Um, so it it just be you like there's one you and you're not going to be happy playing that game. Um, so I'm most comfortable, you know, Red Eye was great. And the view actually, I I was, you know, able to dress like I dress. And there was a lot of me able to talk about non-political stuff as well family and all that. Um, but now I'm doing my own show. And for the, it's great. I'm telling you, man, it's I am. It's like, year, right. You moved to Florida. Is that right? Yeah, actually the show is only about four months old. Oh, it's okay. a baby. It's a brand new baby, but I, it's called Jedediah Be Alive. And it's 
you know, we have guests, we do a little bit of politics, we do dating and relationships. I did move to Florida. Um, and it's just so I it's like, I just take a deep breath. And I just, I'm just me. You know, I wear what I want. I say what I want. I cover what I want. And I it's it's like the dream, man. So um, and I did move to Florida, by the way, in large part, because I was escaping the dystopian nightmare of New York City. And I will tell you this, once you escape that blue hell that people live in, you could never go back. I mean, you'd have to be you'd have to actually be certifiable to go back into that, because once you taste just sane reality around and just people who are just living and they're not trying to tell you what to do. And oh, it's just so refreshing. So that is I'm definitely happy I got out of there. <laughs> well, I've, I've heard those exact sentiments uh, uttered by Carol Markowitz, yeah. by uh, Dave Rubin. So all I hear all day is Florida, Florida, Florida. When are you moving to Florida, guys? Oh, so Dave I Rubin. Oh, I love Dave. Dave is a friend of mine. Dave is just he is the Floridian now. He's like, you know how like they say, um, I think it's Clay. Clay Travis is the like, he's like the mayor of, I think it's Nashville or is it Franklin or right in Tennessee over there? Dave Rubin is your guy in Florida. Like he, he's got those little lizards you see everywhere in Florida. He's got like them on the walls in his house. Like he's here to stay. <laughs> the bottom line. And, you know, it's funny because, I mean, I've been to his house, you know, several times and when he was in Southern California. I'm I'm very much more, I mean, in, in terms of the topography and the weather, I'm a Southern California guy. I was a professor yeah. at UC Irvine for a while. I have family there. Uh, and so for me, at first, it was very difficult that someone, notwithstanding all the woke stuff and the craziness in California, the pull of the weather and the, and the topography yeah. is so great that it was difficult for me to to accept that anybody would make that decision. But I think he's bringing me around. I mean, his his love affair with Florida is, as you said, so intense that he should be on every tourism board of Florida. They, this should. Guy. they should hire him to do they something. They should hire him tomorrow worth, now. It would be worth the money. And, and by the way, I agree with you on Southern California. One thing I didn't share is that I always wanted to live in Southern California. Um, that was my dream. I was like, oh, Malibu. I mean, the weather there is the best weather that you're ever going to find anywhere. And I love California energy. So like, I just love that calmer. I love the food. So I, it breaks my heart what they're doing in Southern California, because that was really my dream. I was like, I'm going to get out of New York because truly, and I always said, I, I, I'm a New Yorker, but I kind of have like a California soul, right. you know? Um, and I wanted that so badly, but it just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't justify once I had a child and I saw where it was going. I was like, if I had already been there, maybe, maybe the pull of the weather and all that, but to go into it, I was like, no, I gotta, I gotta do something different. And truthfully, now that I'm in Florida, I'm like, do I need to be in like Montana or Wyoming? I'm like ready to go one step further. I'm not wow. kidding. You're going to find me on like an estate where you need like binoculars to see another person that's coming next. Wow. So <laughs> uh, all right, let's give me the prediction. So, I mean, I, I, I hope to release this episode today. And if, if I do before the, what's going to happen yeah. tonight where democracy dies. Uh, you want to give me all of your predictions? Take it away. Jared. So, I mean, I'm always hesitant to give predictions because in the world we live in, the truth of the matter is, who knows? I think, by the way, the New York race is fascinating that yeah. the governor is just struggling so much. She's horrific. I mean, on every count. I know people say, well, she wasn't elected. She just stepped in, but still absolutely horrific. So I think it, it's going to be interesting. I, I, I do think she's going to win in New York um, just because New York is what it is. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see how tight that is. She's been very uncomfortable with the tightness of that race, so much so by 
by the way, that she's had to go on television and try to tell people that the crime they see isn't actually happening. I mean, that's the direction she's saying. I think it's going to be um, I think it's going to be a, a, a significantly uh, strong red victory is what I'm is what I'm willing to say. In here. both chambers, you think? <sighs> I'm optimistic. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to say yes. Uh, I'm optimistic. And, you know, I'm already, by the way, looking to the presidential election. Um, and I think it'll be interesting. I, I want to see what happens tomorrow. And then I think it'll be interesting off of that, what the Democrat messaging becomes looking forward to the next presidential election, you know, because we already know Joe Biden's not going to be able to run. He doesn't know who he is or where he is most of the time. So I'm very curious. I've already kind of accepted and acknowledged and checked off the list. This is going to be a red victory, a GOP victory tomorrow. So I'm not worried about that at all. I'm like, okay, next. Um, What I am a little bit, um, I'm worried about two things. One, what will Republicans actually do once they're in a position of leadership? Because one of my, uh, one of my struggles with Republicans is that too many of them, they're just soft, you know, they're soft and they don't they don't do what they need to do. They don't um, step up when they need to step up. When the mandates hit, they were all what asleep. So I, I need them to actually do their job. How much of that are they going to do? And then secondly, um, what is the Democrat messaging going to be and who is the Republican going to be in 2024? There's been a lot of talk about the DeSantis Trump feud. I don't know if you saw that in the last. I did. Days. I did. Uh, what, that's are, what are your thoughts about the, the manner by which, uh, I mean, maybe it's not surprising that he would start with the insults and this, the yeah. sanctimonious, whatever he called them, which yeah. I thought was kind of a weak. I mean, he's got, he's got better put downs than this one. So he might yeah. need to, uh, you know, workshop that one as they say, but, mm-hmm. uh, do, do you think that was a suboptimal strategy for him to, to do what he did? No, I, I don't think it's a good look for him. I don't think it's necessary. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, the whole country's falling apart at the seams, bottom line, as a result of Democrats. I mean, there are cities quite literally on fire. Uh, New York City, you know, <laughs> Chicago. I mean, these these liberal cities are a disaster when it comes to crime, when it comes to safety, security, when it comes to school systems. It's, it's a disaster. So he doesn't need to do that. My concern with Trump is always that Trump's going to be Trump. Right. He's going to be Trump. And I think it is wildly entertaining when he's, you know, up there on a stage and he's dealing with a Democrat and he throws these insults. I mean, really, you want to get your popcorn, sit back and just enjoy the show. But when you're dealing with somebody like a Ron DeSantis, who really has done an outstanding job of doing things that other governors have been too afraid to do. This is a guy who really made statements about policy and then put them into action. So much so that a bulk of the country flocked to Florida to live here as a result, just saying this guy actually, you know, when it comes to the school system, with the woke policies, when it came to the masks, when it came to the vaccine mandates, he was he was doing stuff to preserve people's freedom. So I I don't know. I have a feeling that DeSantis, if Trump is going to run DeSantis is not going to want to he's not going to want to be there because I don't think he wants to deal with all that. And I think Trump's going to do Trump. You know, I think he he views it as, you know, that's just part of his personality. He's got a little bit of an ego. We all know that he's going to say what he's got to say. And I think I think DeSantis is going to be hesitant to want to wade into that. I don't know how comfortable he will be with that type of personality, truthfully. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I think if Trump wants to run, it's going to be Trump. That's it. I think everybody else is going to step back. He's very popular still. Um, my concerns with Trump actually have very little to do with his policies while he was in office. My only concerns with him will be one, will he feel the need to defend 
the vaccine stuff, you know, beyond the pale because it was part of his administration? Will right. he view that as well? Is it it's part of my legacy or will he be honest and say what I thought was going on isn't what actually happened? That's what he should do. What right. Trump should really come out and do if he's the guy and he very well maybe if he wants to win and he very well can win, he should come out and he should say there was a lot that was going on there that shouldn't have been going on. He should say he should have fired Fauci because he should have. Yeah. He should say that these mandates were horrific and should never have been in place and that people should have had, you know, the individual decision making preserved. Um, he should talk about what Democrats have done wrong and he should not pick on key Republicans who, when things were going bad, who were the ones who were standing up for freedom. It's just that's what he should do if he wants to be the guy. I don't know if it's your personality, though. I mean, you saw him on Twitter. That's just who he is. You know, yeah. I don't I don't know. I don't know if he'll be able to say, you know what, for this moment, let me just do this and not do all this other stuff. It's not helpful. I don't know. Do you think that uh, pretty boy Gavin Newsom will be the main guy on the on the Democratic side? Yes, I do. And I think he's horrible. I yeah. mean, truthfully, I don't. He looks like it looks to me like he and Beto O'Rourke like took the same same bad course. Yeah. They they graduated and they both came out and they have this same like veneer of like almost like if somebody were to play a politician on TV and they were going to be like kind of a used car salesman combo yes. with a politician. That's them. The two of them have the same exact. You know, energy. So it's funny. Let me let me interrupt you. Uh, what is it that allows you to have access to that description, which I can completely understand. In other words, I'm saying yes, exactly, precisely. We, you didn't mention a word about his policies. It's just what he exudes of falsity. Yeah. In so what is it that makes you and me able to see that, but the people who support these these folks not see that? What, what What is it in their perceptual system that's being shut off that makes it that it's inaccessible to them? Well, this will be an unpopular statement, but I believe that a lot of liberals are hardwired to actually admire authoritarians. I think they like it. I think they actually like that kind of glossed over authority. Govern me, govern me harder, yes. daddy's thing. Tell me what I need to hear, the brave new world model. I think yeah. they're just very comfortable with being led by the hand and yeah. I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And the truth of the matter is if they weren't, then the liberal policies themselves wouldn't appeal to them. If they were like, I want to be autonomous and personal responsibility and run my own life, Gavin Newsom's going to be a joke to you. You know, yeah. it's going to be laughable, especially a guy who through the whole pandemic was shutting down parts of California, doing this and that, and then going and eating out at restaurants. I mean, it's nauseating. Yeah. So I do think it's appealing. And that's something that I've talked about, you know, quite a bit, just opening people's eyes to say there is a, a pretty significant segment of this country that's comfortable with authoritarianism that likes it and that wants to be told what to do. You know, Joy Behar wants to be, she's very comfortable with you telling her what to do, not me telling her what to do, but if you're in a position of authority, you know, right. Bill Gates can tell her what to do, right. you know, right. uh, Bill de Blasio can tell her what to do because they know better. She's comfortable with that paradigm. As long as they have a little D that says Democrat. And as long as she knows they vote blue, she feels like we're all on the same team. You're in a position of authority. Tell me what to do. Conservatives don't operate like that. Conservatives are not like that. We are very, I mean, look at like the Jesse Kellys of the world. We're very hesitant to trust anyone, let alone a politician. So we'll call out, you know, if Trump needs to be put in his place, I'm going to be like, dude, you need to stop doing that. It's not helpful. You know, there are a lot of conservatives that are hardwired to question authority and to question, you know, these people in positions who 
supposedly know better than you do. We're hardwired to say, no, you know what? Actually, it's it's my life and it's my family and I know better. So we'll take that debate with you. Um, it's a very, very different head. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of this younger generation, the millennials in particular, I think are hardwired to love authoritarians because they're the coddle generation. However, the folks coming after them are, they're doing a 180 from that. They're uh, the young, younger than I would say the people who are like the, the kids that are like 15, 16, 17, they're tired of the woke stuff. They don't like the cancel culture because they know it could apply to anyone. Everyone's got a social media presence. Everyone makes mistakes. They are rejecting a lot of that. So I think that generation is going to be the one that's going to save us. That's why I'm always talking to like the young kids and, uh, you know, they're, they're going to come back and they're going to undo a lot of this crazy that's been invoked in the name of, you know, political correctness and, um, you know, making everybody feel like they can get a trophy. And, you know, now the new thing is obesity is healthy. You know, it's just ridiculous. Yes. yes the Lizzo effect. Uh, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Two, two, two last questions. Number one, would you uh, ever yeah, would interest, be interested in a political career? To run for office? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I told Patrick Bet David, uh, my friend, that if he runs for president, I'll consider being the press secretary, um, but only for him, truthfully. And he, he knows that. I don't have aspirations to run for office. First of all, I feel like I would need to sanitize myself every time I went in and out of Washington, D.C. Um, and I'm just not wired for that that angle of it. I, I feel like it's, again... A lot of those people are comfortable sitting around doing nothing, you know, towing a line, you know, they they say a talking point, their lives don't reflect how they actually feel. I actually feel like there's a a, a deep amount of dishonesty that just yeah, permeates those settings. So I, I just don't, politics in that sense is not for me. What I'd much rather do is raise honest discussion and challenge all of the bigs, I say. I challenge, you know, big government, big tech, big pharma. Um, and I'm someone out here who's just telling people the truth. And I think that's what we need more than anything. So that that's really where I'm most comfortable. Um, I do think I would make a mean press secretary because I would take no garbage. We all know that. <laughs> so that would be fun. So tell PBD if he wants to run for president. But honestly, I don't think I'd have a, pa a patience also for a lot of the bureaucracy. I'd just be slashing departments. You know that. I'd be well, like this you certainly fit the mold of what was what was uh trump's i, I can't remember her name uh trump's oh, Kaylee? yeah she's a yeah. firecracker that one she is she and, is but what i love about her she's kind of she's she has this and i guess i think you you exude the same quality kind of a smiling assassin approach right so that <laughs> yes. you know you've got the smile so that you're there is a warmth but yet there is there is punch there's a dynamite behind it and i i really do appreciate that uh, okay, last question. Uh, are there any projects that you are currently working on that you'd like to use this opportunity to promote? Take it away, madam. Yeah, I mean, I would encourage people to check out my show, Jedediah Beale Alive. The focus of that show is both politics um, and, again, mostly challenging the system, the matrix, as I call it you know, the Bill Gates of the world and also dating and relationships, because I believe there's a crisis uh, when it comes to men in particular in society. Men are being told they're toxic when they're proud of their masculinity. Men are being told to sit down and shut up. I have a little boy coming into this world. Um, the dating scene is horrific. What's going on right now? I don't like what modern feminism has done to women in terms of, you know, their the way they view men, the way they treat men. Um, I don't like oftentimes what's going on in hookup culture that 
that makes both of them treat each other badly. So I'm trying to like remedy a lot of that through conversation and through discussion. So I would encourage people check that out. I'm kind of challenging the system at large. Um, I'm on, and that's really my baby right now. I mean, I, you know, I'm on locals. People can check me out there. I do some cool stuff over there. Uh, we cross publish over at rumble. I'm on this cool app Manect now. I don't know if you've heard of this. Oh PBD. yes. Yes. But tell PBD, us about it. Oh, PBD created this app to Manect, which is yeah. so cool. Basically people can go there and they can, you know, FaceTime with me. They can do a group FaceTime an individual FaceTime. They can send me a text message. They can do whatever they want. Ask me any questions they want. I, I actually marketed as like, hey, I cover dating and relationships here. You want to ask me marriage questions. You want to ask me dating a relationship. You're a woman out there who doesn't fit into this world and, you know, is being berated for wanting to stay at home and take care of your kids. And you need some advice how to, you know, reach out. You're a guy out there who's tired of being a good guy and get trampled on. I'm going to tell you what to do. So I marketed it like that. And I've been getting these amazing questions and it's fantastic. Wow. But that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, I'm thinking about another book. But as you know, a book is a project. So that's on hold for right now. But right now it's the show. The Um, book that you had had planned on writing on education. Can we dust dust that off and bring it back to life or is it dead? I actually think I have something else coming. Um, Not just yet, because I want to focus on the show. We're also going to be doing some live audience shows where people can actually buy tickets and come and see the show. Cool stuff like that. But the next book is going to actually be focused more on some of the problems that have happened in society a result of you know post Gloria Steinem feminism mm. um I'll get a lot of heat for that one but I think it's an important message to young women today I think I'm going to go that route the next one but we'll see we'll see you never know I could always be uh I could always be spicing it up with some education you never know well it's an absolute delight to speak to you stay on the line so we could say officially goodbye of offline and uh please come back again best of luck with your new show and I look forward for to thank you so on much your I show. It. Cheers, thank you Take care. All right. Let me stop it.